Uh, one of the words that is frequently used is servant from Isaiah 41 through 53. In those 13 chapters, 20 times it refers to servant, and it is typically in the context of servant of the Lord. It is um, God saying, my servant, or Isaiah speaking of the Lord's servant. That, that word servant has all sorts of different meanings across different cultures, not all of them flattering, but in Isaiah, servant is a term of honor. It is speaking of one who is devoted to service of the living God, who is committed to, to be a servant of Yahweh. The New Testament writers certainly pick up on this Old Testament theme. Paul, James, Peter, Jude, John all introduce themselves at one point or another as servants of Christ. Peter, Paul, I, I a servant of Jesus Christ in their writing. They, they understand this high and holy place of servanthood, of being in that position of being dedicated to serving Jesus Christ, obeying his commands, doing his will. The model for this is Jesus, of course. Philippians 2.7 describes him emptying himself and taking the form of a servant. Jesus Christ said to his disciples, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And so to be a servant is, is to be like Jesus Christ. He teaches his disciples that the greatest among them would be those who are the servants of others and then says that one of the highest honors for any follower of Jesus Christ is to hear the master with his approving words, well done, good and faithful servant. There it is, servant. So I, I want to, this morning in Isaiah 49, I want to sort of entice you to servanthood. I want to encourage you in servanthood. And, and it would behoove us as followers of Jesus Christ to understand servanthood better, to know what it means to be able to follow it. And so Isaiah 49 is another one of the servant songs in Isaiah. There are four, typically, that commentators describe, four servant songs. Isaiah, in, in chapter 42 that we've looked at already, 49, 50 that we'll see next week, and then 53. And all of them are, are building out this description of this unique servant. We've said before the term servant is used in a number of different ways um, throughout the book of Isaiah to speak of the nation of Israel, to speak of Isaiah, to, to, to speak of others um, in, in the court of, of the king. But in this particular instance, the, the servant songs are meant to build out the description of this unique servant of the Lord, this one who is called to bring redemption to his people, to be a savior. Now, you and I, with the benefit of hindsight and the New Testament, already know where Isaiah is going with this. We can identify that servant. We understand that this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But at 700 BC, this is a description that is being filled out. They are beginning to grasp the coming of someone who is great, of one who is messianic. And so they are beginning to, to form that description. And so um, be, before we read chapter 49, let me just remind again, just as we lead up to this in the preceding chapters, one of the things we've been seeing is the warnings of judgment that, that God has been giving to the, the Jewish people, to the nation of Judah. Because of your sin, you will experience punishment. The instrument of that punishment will be the nation of Babylon. They will, their army will come in and defeat you and capture you and take you captive. And then we've seen the prophetic word about the, the coming empire that replaces Babylon, Cyrus and Persia that comes and defeats Babylon and sets the people of Judah free. 
allows them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. That is, and we talked about this last week, that is a marvelous display of God's power, that, that God is orchestrating the events of history, that he is raising up empires and bringing down empires, that he is doing all of this according to his plan and his counsel. And, and, and so his ultimate recovery of the people from out of Babylon is a demonstration that Yahweh is not defeated. That if there was any thought that because Babylon leveled Jerusalem and, and, and leveled the, the temple, that somehow Yahweh was defeated, his release of his people through Persia and through Cyrus is evidence that God wins. God ultimately is in control. God's will is done, and, and he vanquishes those who are his enemies, and he keeps his promises. It is a great message about the power of Yahweh. But if you remember last week at the end of chapter 48, something is still missing. There's still one element that's not quite there yet. Near the end of Isaiah 48, if you look at those last few verses, there's a part of that in verse 20 where he's talking to the people who are being freed, who will be freed. It's prophetic. He's talking to those who will be freed from Babylon. And he's saying, when that day comes, you will go out and you will declare Yahweh's deliverance. You will go out and you will experience his provision, just like your ancestors did. And he talks about being carried through the wilderness and being provided water in the wilderness. He's talking about those who were taken out of Egypt and who were released from captivity. And he's comparing the two, but, but in all of that, saying, you will go out and say, the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. So you are to declare to the nations when you are set free, God did this. This is the work of Yahweh. God did, and he rescued his people, and he deserves the glory. And, and so you've got that in 20 and 21 at the end of Isaiah 48, this sort of celebratory, remarkable work of God in history. And then you come to the last verse of Isaiah 48, verse 22, and there is this jarring, sudden statement that almost doesn't seem to fit when you go from this command to celebrate and proclaim the Lord's deliverance, and then in verse 22, it says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. It is abrupt. We're talking the God who controls history, celebrating victory, declaring his greatness, and there is no peace for the wicked. Even when their earthly circumstances seemed the best possible, the, the people still faced a crisis of a magnitude that they could not really conceive. You may have been delivered, you may have been set free from captivity, but until your wickedness is dealt with, you are still not right with God. That, that your maker, the one who has been so compassionate to you and provides for you, you are still at hostility with him and it is on account of your wickedness that you remain separated from him. And so it is Isaiah 48, 22 that launches us into Isaiah 49 in the servant song. And remember, we've said this before, no, the chapter and the verse breaks were added later on historically. They weren't there when Isaiah wrote this. And so you would have probably seen the flow a little easier in terms of moving right from your circumstances will be wonderful and you will sing Yahweh's deliverance, but the wicked will not have peace into now, what do we do about that? What do we do about this not having peace? Apparently a simple fixing of your circumstances, a bettering of your, your posture in life does not ultimately give you lasting peace. God still has to do something. And so that's what sets us up for chapter 49. Verse one, 
then says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to imperatives. Listen and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Listen and pay attention. So follow, there is no peace for the wicked. And so the, 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 call, the, the call there is to pause and realize we're all sinners. And so there's a sort of hopeless moment there. So listen, give attention to this. God is going to do something. And, and, and this now is the servant. God's call here extends. And, and it's, you see it right away in verse one. This is not just a message to the Jews and to Judah. He's saying coastlands, people from afar. This is not just a freeing of the captives, even though he's Back in, in, in 4820, he said, when you declare what I did, declare it to the, the ends of the earth. Later on in this same chapter in 49, he'll speak of the Lord's salvation to the end of the earth. So here in verse 1, he's, he's setting that up and saying, this, this is a message, this is news of salvation for all nations. Verse 1 now starts to describe, this is this building out of the picture of the servant. He's an individual. He is someone who is born of a woman. His mission is given to him before he is even born, the verse says. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. We could go back to the, 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 the stories in, in the Gospels that we read at Advent season and the naming of Jesus coming while he is still in the womb. You will name him Emmanuel because he will save his people from their sins. All right, then we start to get into what the servant does, how the servant ministers. Verse 2, he made my mouth... Like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. The, the hiding part that he references twice there is the fact that this, this one is going to be revealed. Just like we keep seeing in Isaiah, I'm, I'm speaking a new thing. Not new to God, new to man. So this is, this is to be revealed to man, and it will come at the, at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, at the birth of Jesus Christ. But what I really want to just key in on, and starting here with this verse, is six qualities of ministry of the servant of the Lord. Six qualities that describe his ministry, and, and, and not just so that we get what it is that Jesus does, but these are qualities of servanthood. When we talk about our own call to service, this is where I want to entice you to servanthood, that, that what he's laying out here for this servant also by application now goes to us as those who are servants of Jesus Christ, qualities that should mark our servanthood. And the first one that he alludes to here is God's servant speaks. His word is powerful. He speaks God's word. This is... The, the time when Isaiah wrote this, no different than it is today. Those who, who control things tend to do so by exerting force. They have power in some way. In our country, it's elected power. In some countries, it's just taken power in some way. But it is those who, who control and have authority to say, this is what will be done. And what this is saying is this servant who comes, the power will be through his words. He will speak such 
truth, he will speak with such power that it will be like a sword. He won't need weapons of warfare like, like we're used to. He will speak God's word, and that word will be like a sharp sword or a polished arrow. So in other words, it'll pierce. We know from when we get onto the book of Hebrews that his word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it pierces down to the very thoughts and intents of our heart. And, and that's what he's laying out here, this servant saying, I have been given this instrument, and it is God's word that I speak. That, that's primarily the way that I, I, I bring people to a knowledge of the truth is by my words. And so then verse 3, and he said to me, that, so this is the servant saying, the Lord said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. We'll come back to the you are my servant Israel part in a moment. But the, 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 the first point here is that the servant confirming this is the Lord's work. I have, been de- I have been designated as his servant because of his choosing, his will. He is the one that, 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 that determines this and designates me to, to obey him and to be his servant. God, it then says, will bring glory to himself. And so the servant of God speaks. Second, he glorifies God. In in the speaking, his aim is to magnify the greatness of God. It is for people to see God larger. It is to, to just expound on who God is. And so as the servant obeys and speaks the word, God is magnified in splendor. John's description of the incarnation of Jesus Christ says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what happened? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the, the imagery of Jesus Christ is as the, the revelation of God. He is the Word. He is the, that which helps us to see God, which exposes, exposits God to us. And so he reveals that. He is the Word. Um, that Word, we know from the ministry of Jesus Christ, is powerful to both draw people to himself, people who marvel, we see in the Gospels, who marvel at his speech and they, they follow him and they are drawn to him and others who hate what he says and they are convicted by what he says and so they oppose him and, and they want nothing more than to, to, to kill him. They want to be rid of him. Regardless of the response, what, what the New Testament shows us is what Isaiah is speaking about here when the servant is speaking and that is his power, his demonstration of the glory of God will come through the proclamation of God's word. It will come by speaking this truth. Matthew's gospel reminds us that even unto the point of crucifixion, this glory of God through Jesus is evident. The centurion who stands by and goes, truly, this was the son of God. There's something about this being, this man, from what he has said and what he has done and what he has lived out, that is undeniable. For you and I then, we are servants of Jesus Christ. And so as his servants, our our great calling is to obey and to speak his truth. It is to, to trust that his word is powerful, that we can speak it into the lives of our children or into those who are near us, that we can speak God's word and it will be powerful in what it accomplishes and we are We are magnifying God by both living out and speaking his truth. As we live out the word, we are glorifying Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, God's word says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power. We destroy arguments 
and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We're confronting Satan's lies. We're confronting opposition by what? God's truth. By the the knowledge of God is revealed in his word. And so that is the, the sharp instrument, living out God's word in front of a culture that mocks him, speaking to a world that is lost in darkness and and not being ashamed of this book, but speaking its truth. Our our ministry is to obey it and to speak it. Paul said it in Ephesians 6, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That, That is our offensive instrument, our weapon that we use. It is the truth of the word of God. And that's what brings glory to our king. Um, before we leave verse three, a lot of ink spent by commentators on the, you are my servant, Israel. What does he mean? What is he talking about when he speaks of this servant, identifying him as Israel? There are places in Isaiah where God has very specifically talked to the nation of Judah and referred to them as servant. So the, there, there's times when it's a corporate identification, Israel, my servant, but that's not the case here because we've already seen it, the, the, the fact that he is born of a woman and we'll see it more later on, that this is an individual. So th- this is clearly talking about Jesus and not talking about some kind of corporate entity at this point. Verse five, he will say that he brought me forth in the womb to bring Jacob back to God. So this can't be Israel in in the corporate sense, or essentially he'd be saying, I have formed you, Israel, to bring Israel back to God. That's a, a little bit redundant and doesn't make a lot of sense. He's talking to this individual. So then why does he call Jesus Israel? Again, throughout Isaiah, throughout the Old Testament, there are frequent references to, to Israel as God's servant, as those who were called to be servants of the living God. And that, that really goes back, we can go all the way back to Genesis 12 and, and, and God's promise to Abraham that through your line, through your people, you will, your, your seed will be a blessing to all the nations. There's a servant role to the descendants of Abraham in that they will show the world who God is. In, in Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 19, the nation's commissioned to be a kingdom of priests, God's treasured possession. And so Israel was to be a servant in the sense that other nations were to see something unique. They were to see a people uniquely devoted to Yahweh in a way that would cause them to be intrigued and to want to, to come toward him. And what's the reality? It's that Israel often failed. That, that despite their pledges to uphold their side of the covenant, they sinned and they broke the covenant and, and they demonstrated disobedience and and sort of blended in with their neighbors, just kind of mixed in and took part in the the syncretism of the the neighboring nations. That's why this servant, this individual servant, embodies everything that the nation of Israel was called to be. Where Israel has failed to be that light in the darkness, God is saying, this is my servant. This now is sort of the the ideal Israel, the ideal servant who fulfills everything Israel was called to be, but does so now perfectly. That's why he's called Israel here. All right, verse four. Servant speaking. He says, but, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. 
We sometimes talk about the lament psalms. Roughly a third of the psalms are what we would call lament psalms. And I I would suggest to you that verse 4 is sort of a mini lament psalm. It's sort of a description of, of when we talk about lament psalms, you sort of see it all right here. He says at the beginning, and and, and again, now we understand who this servant is. This is Jesus. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. And and so the the temptation here is to think, what what could this be? How could Jesus be speaking in terms of what sounds like failure? Well, here's, here's the third thing about the servant. The servant trusts even when he is tested. This is not the servant throwing up his hands in utter dismay and saying it's all a failure. I I would argue that this is really prophetic, almost taking us to the scene of Jesus standing over the city of Jerusalem in in Luke chapter 13 when Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. That is lament. That is an expression of pain, and sorrow that, that the king has come, that the servant has come, and he has come to gather them, and they have rejected him. They were not willing. And I, I think in a sense that's what we're seeing here in verse 4. You take it strictly from a, a horizontal sort of human perspective. Take the spiritual piece out of it for just a second, and you look at the life of Jesus Christ, and you see one who came, who lived a perfect life, who loved people, who served people, who performed signs, healed, raised the dead. And where do we see him at the end of his earthly ministry? In in Jerusalem with people shouting, crucify him. We want him dead. We don't want to hear his voice anymore. We want him silenced and murdered in the the, the clearest way possible. And, And there's a level at which you could look at that and go, well, that just humanly, that just is a failure. It all seems so in vain. But verse 4, very much like the Lament Psalms, doesn't end with, it's a genuine expression of sorrow and grief at the people's being unwillingness, uh, unwilling to respond, and yet then it says, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. It is a statement of the servant saying, I trust the Lord. I trust that he will vindicate me. I trust that when when this is made right, when there is reward to be given, it will come from my Father and he will do all that he intends to do. And this will not be ultimate defeat. The servant will be vindicated by the Lord. I have done the Father's will and he will reward me. Jesus speaks in language like that in his earthly ministry. In John 10, when he says I, I, he gives eternal life to his sheep, they hear his voice, no one can snatch them out of his hand. John 10, 29, he says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Despite all appearances, the life and death of Jesus Christ is not in vain. The Father's plan of redemption is carried out through Jesus, and souls are saved, and sheep are brought to the Lord, and they are not lost. He holds them, and so his his death and his resurrection accomplishes this. Now, let's just apply this for just a second. Have you, is there someone that you love that you have have urged them to to believe in Jesus Christ, that you have spoken the truth to them, that you you have strived to live Christ out in front of them, and you have maybe shared the gospel with them, and they have essentially said, get lost, 
that I'm, I'm glad that works for you, but it doesn't work for me and I don't want to hear it. You understand what it is to feel the kind of grief, that broken-hearted sense of it, it, it feels almost in vain. But the Lord says, no, it's not. Your labor for the Lord is not in vain. He says that at the end of the great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your, the, the, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Proclaim his truth. Live out Christ before people. Be different, obey his word, speak his word, and trust that God will bring the reward. God will bring the harvest, rest in him. And that's what the servant is saying. Yeah, there's, there's testing in earthly ministry. There's testing in being a servant. But trust the Lord, even in the testing, that God will bring fruit to bear. All right, let's read on verses five and six. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Lord says to the servant, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God's servant speaks, glorifies, trusts when tested, and knows his calling. There's a, one of the commentaries on this chapter calls Isaiah 49 one of the greatest missionary chapters of the Bible. It's not one that we often look to when we talk about missions messages, and yet you, you see it in the contrast between verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, the Lord has said to me, servant... You are to bring the people of Israel back to me. You are to go. Where does Jesus go? And his ministry is launched among the Jewish people. It is to call them to repentance. Some, a remnant, turn to him and believe in him. And we go to Pentecost and the church is born amongst the Jewish people. And so that's good. That's what Jesus, that's what the servant has been called to. Go and, and call my people back to me. But then verse six essentially says, but really that's too small of a task. That's, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Bridge the, the divide between my people and I bring them to me, but there's so much more. Amen. Verse 6 says that the greater task is you will be a light to the nations. You will proclaim salvation to the end of the earth. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This global commission is then shared with who? Us. Yeah, you and I. I, I simply go to the end of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And what is he saying to his disciples? As you're going out into the world, make disciples. Go and proclaim the gospel. Speak the truth, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. You take the saving word that I have entrusted to you, the, the sword of the spirit, that great instrument of, of piercing people's hearts, and you proclaim it and, and, and call people to repentance. We will be tested as Jesus was. We will be tempted to look at the world and, and to look at the world situation in, in the current day and feel like it's just lost. It, it, it's just a mess and, and, and there's, it's hard to imagine anything coming out of the darkness that is on our land. Look, look at verse seven. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. To one, the Lord speaking to the servant, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings 
shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. That is an incredible assurance from our master. That people, even rulers, who detest Jesus, who abhor Jesus Christ, will one day recognize that he is king. They will one day bow before him. It's repeated for us in the New Testament when we are told that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is the, the prophetic look forward to that so that even today, as we see our world increasingly mock the very concept of holiness and and accountability to a creator God just seems utterly foolish to the world, God's word vows that even kings who have despised him will ultimately bow before him, that the servant will be exalted. God will do this through his chosen servant. And so that means our calling stands. We are called. We are called, and, and, and not to just sit back and wait for that day and say, well, God's going to do all this, and we don't have anything to do in the meantime. We are to be lights that shine in the darkness. We are to call people to, to turn to Jesus Christ and turn from their sin and believe in him. He is our Lord, and we are his servants, and we are to speak his gospel. And that calling will not be easy, but what he's describing for us here is the Lord ensures that his servant will be glorified. He will do this, and he will accomplish his work through his servant, and, and, and by extension and application, through us as servants of Jesus Christ. Right, look at uh, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you, and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. There is prophetic language here that I, I think in some of this in Isaiah is looking forward to the coming kingdom of, of Jesus Christ. But, but here in, in the moment, the fifth thing that God's servant does is he seeks the Lord and receives help. The Lord promised, it says, to answer his servant. In, the time, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. That tells us what? That the servant sought help. That the servant cries out to God and, and seeks to have that answered. How often do we see Jesus in his earthly ministry moving away to spend time in prayer? God in flesh still, still having to spend time in communion with the Father and be refreshed and strengthened from his Father in prayer. And, and we are reminded in all of this our desperate need for help. There is testing. There is Rejection, there is opposition, and we must ask the Lord for help. Verse 8 says the Lord also will, that the servant will be made his covenant, his servant a covenant to the people. Biblical covenants show God's blessing to his people, his promise of blessing. Jesus encapsulates all of God's blessings to his people. Jesus is that covenant. He is the, the picture of all of God's promises being yes and amen in Christ. God's provision of blessing is through Christ. 
Friends, we, we, are, we are called to be servants. We are called to proclaim Christ, and we are assured that it will not be easy, that there will be testing, and we must trust in our Lord, but we need to be servants, and we need to be asking for help. We need to be faithfully praying and pleading with the Lord to help in our, our struggle with our flesh, in our ministry of the gospel to our neighbor, in our living out Christ in our workplace, in our parenting at home, in our, our, our trying to engage with other believers in church. Lord, we need help to do these things. I, I, I'll just make one quick connection to current times for us. I, I, I go back just a little over a week ago. A week ago Friday, we asked for a day of prayer. We asked a lot of you to just take time at some point during the day last Friday and just pray for God's work in the life, uh, in, in the ministries of Grace Bible Church. And in particular, we said, would you pray for the fall festival? Would you pray that God would, would bring people here that would let us build some relationships and encourage people to come to the church? Any of you were here saw God heard and in his grace answered and, and, and brought far more than we had ever anticipated. And, and I would say to you again, that's just a reminder that the Lord hears and he answers and he desires to help, but that requires servants who know we need help and who ask for it. All right, let me read on verses 9 through 12. This is the servant commissioned by the Lord to speak. And so here's what he's saying, verse 9, saying to the prisoners, come out, imperative, strong command here, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sion. Sixth and final quality of the servant's ministry is he urges sinners to his light. He urges, he passionately calls sinners to come to Christ. The language there of come out and appear are, are urgent words. And, and the servant is saying, there is food for your hunger. There are streams for your thirst. There is a, a reliable guide who will walk with you and lead you through life. Come to him. Come out of the darkness and come to him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about God glorifying himself by providing atonement for our sin, a beautiful message of hope and peace. It does not it does not demand, as, as most of the world's religions do, that you somehow earn your way to some end game of paradise, that you walk some difficult winding path and avoid as many of the potholes as you can and, and walk well, and if you get to the end and you've done okay, then you might get some reward in the end. No, the, the description here is, I've leveled the road. I've already taken down the mountains. I have made the pathway to the Lord if you will simply come. If you will turn from your sin and you will come to Jesus, and he is actually urging people to come. Sinners can have fellowship with the living God because Jesus laid down his life and endured the pain and shame of the cross. And so now Jesus and his servants, you and I, can say to a, a broken world that is littered with evil, come, 
There is refreshment for your soul in Christ. That what, what your, your deepest hunger and thirst is for is for this king. It is for this one if you will trust in him. It's not that it'll be a trouble-free path, emptied of all suffering, but if you will trust Jesus, he will guide you. He will walk with you on that path and he will take you to the, the pools of living water and he will refresh you. That picture in verse 12 is just glorious. On a small scale, when he says that, um, behold, people from the north and the west, the, the, the immediate picture there would be people coming out of captivity. It would be the people coming out of Babylon, coming out of the north, and, and now coming back to Jerusalem. And so on a small scale, but I would say to you very much like he said before, that's too light of a task for God. Yes, he can free the captives and they can come back and rejoice. Really, what, what, what's being pictured in verse 12 is ultimately a picture of people from every part of the earth coming to the throne of Jesus Christ. And they are streaming to him from all directions because they have been urged to the gospel and God by his grace has saved them and they are full of hope and life. And what Isaiah is showing us is that beautiful picture of the nations streaming to the Savior from out of the darkness. The Lord's servant has made the way. He has accomplished our redemption. The Lord's servant has glorified the Lord through his, his perfect obedience and submission to the Father's will. In his darkest hour, the Lord's servant trusts the Father even to the point of saying, not my will, but yours be done. And throughout his earthly ministry, the, the Lord's servant communes with his Father. And he pleads with people, people who are trapped in sin, that you can have living water. There, there is life in following me. This ministry is now entrusted to you and I, and we are empowered. And so when we see the Lord's servant, we are in awe of the Lord's servant, but we also know that we are now empowered to be servants of Jesus Christ and to carry out these ministries. Because as Isaiah 48, 22 said, there is no peace for the wicked, oh, but the servant is coming. That's not the end. There is hope and forgiveness and life. The servant is bringing salvation. And so this song, this servant song, ends appropriately enough with verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Isn't that a glorious way and a, a, a wonderful prompt for us now to spend some time singing and rejoicing and, and seeing that the Lord's servant has come and has now modeled for us what it is to follow after him and now to be his servant and, and to proclaim and urge people to his light. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you as a needy people Lord, it is by your grace that you have drawn us to Jesus Christ. It is by your grace that our blind eyes have been opened to see the glory of the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you have given your very son to be this servant, to, to die on the cross. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who is not fully trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, that that I would speak, that you would, your spirit would accomplish in their hearts that this same urging, this same sort of passion that we see in this passage that would call people to come, that you would speak to the hearts of those who need to trust in Jesus Christ and compel them to see that 
in Jesus, there is life. The, the Savior came and lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners, rose again to defeat the power of sin and death, and now gives life to all who will come to Him, who will turn from their sin and come to Him. Father, would you, in the life of Grace Bible Church, this body of believers, would you give us a, a glad heart for servanthood? Would you help us with our neighbors, with our classmates, with our work colleagues, with our difficult family members, with the people in our lives that bring all sorts of challenges? Would you, would you please, by your grace, help us to have a servant's mentality that we would desire to hold out Christ and to speak your truth? Would you give us a, an even deeper reliance on your word, a willingness to study it and to know it and to speak it, and a humility before you that we would frequently be before you crying out for help and strength? Lord, I pray that in, in this community of Lorton uh, that we would be distinctive by our hearts that would serve, that, that people would see in Grace Bible Church a, a group of people who genuinely Amen. love to serve other people and to meet those needs. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself to take the form of a servant that he might give himself as a ransom for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.